0: If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26. You know, so often we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Cornerstone, and because our pastor typically preaches through books and individual scriptures, oftentimes it's often thought of as a, a second-hand thought. We do it at the end of the service. The message may not tie in with the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it does. But I wanted to take the opportunity today to spend just a few moments for us to really think about what we're going to be doing in a few moments, and that is celebrating the Lord's Supper. Here in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during a Passover meal. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at each of the scriptures and what those scriptures mean and what we are to do. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word, to look at it for the next few moments. And Lord, we just ask you to remind us again of the importance of celebrating the Lord's Supper. What it's all about. And Father, what Jesus did for us, that we might partake of this very special meal. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a very simple and plain memorial. Resting there in the area around the reflection pool of Washington, D.C., small in comparison to all the monuments around it almost everything else towers well above it and yet the vietnam veterans memorial in washington dc leaves an unforgettable impression upon all of those who visit the 247 foot long 10 foot high black granite wall stands between the Washington Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial, just to the right of the reflecting pool there as you face the Lincoln Shrine. The simple black wall descends into the hill with the angles of the two walls pointing toward the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. In the granite stone are inscribed the names of over 58,000 fallen Vietnam service members. Nearby stands a life-size sculpture of a platoon of very young soldiers on patrol. When you visit the memorial, almost any time, day or night, you're going to see a sidewalk that has flowers thrown on it. Oftentimes, you'll see pictures and other mementos that family members and friends and sometimes even strangers have left behind. Pretty much, someone is always reaching out to touch one of those names on the wall, oftentimes taking and etching it into a piece of paper for a keepsake. Each year when I go to Washington, oftentimes as many as two or three times a year, I visit that memorial. Hundreds of thousands of men gathered there back on October 4th in 1997 for a huge promise keepers stand in the gap rally. Hundreds of those men made their way to that wall before the dawn of of the day. No doubt many of them knew some of the names on those walls. And a memorial, as the name implies, is about remembering. A memorial is established so that generations to come will not forget something very important. Remembering world-changing events, important people, and lasting commitments. They matter. And some things must never be forgotten. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial is one of those things, but so is the Lord's Supper. And what we do here today is really quite simple. A few words of reminder. The piano will play softly as we gather our thoughts about what we're about to do. Prayers will be offered, and trays of unleavened bread and small cups of grape juice will be passed from person to person. In a sense, our partaking of the Lord's Supper stands out in our service by the understatement and simplicity of it, and often best memorials are that way. In Matthew's 26th chapter here, verses 26 through 30, God's Word describes for us how on that Thursday over 2,000 years ago, While Jesus was alone with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem, he introduced us to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus foretold in advance what was going to happen. He even foretold in advance that one of the twelve would go out and turn him in to the religious authorities to where he would be subject to them in a crucifixion. Each of the disciples wondering in their mind, was it them? Could it possibly be them? Were they the ones that was going to be the one to betray him? So Jesus made it clear it was going to be Judas Iscariot. And while they were gathered there, Judas used that opportunity to leave to get the ball rolling, so to speak. He left them as Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal there, with his disciples, as they ready to eat what we would consider an appetizer of bread and dip made of herbs and raisins and other ingredients. The 2,000-year-old event was based upon another event that had happened some thousand years before that. The event would be the Passover in Egypt. And the main course of the Passover meal would be the slain Passover lamb. The lamb was slain. The blood was shed to illustrate God's deliverance over Egypt by the death angel. You'll recall the story. When the lamb was slain, they took hyssop branches and they dipped it in the blood and they took that blood and they spread it over the doormantle of the homes there in Egypt. And during the night when the death angel came, if the death angel saw the blood spread across the doormantle, the blood represented deliverance and safety. And if the death angel saw that, they would not go into that house. But if there was a home that did not have the blood spread over the doorframe, the death angel would enter and the firstborn of the family would be killed. It actually happened to the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh. Now we know Jesus is God's holy lamb that will fulfill all the Old Testament sacrifices that came before him. You see, the old sacrifices could not remove sin from people. It could only cover their sins until a final sacrifice was made. Jesus was that final sacrifice. Jesus shed his precious blood to atone for our sins, and that final sacrifice was made. Now today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember what Jesus did in that great sacrifice and to look forward to the day when we will enjoy the Lord's Supper again with him in our presence. Verse 26 starts out by saying, While they were eating, in the middle of the meal, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. He first takes the unleavened bread. They are right in the middle of the Passover meal, and he shifts his focus away from what had happened as recorded in the Old Testament in Exodus, Egypt, to his coming death on the cross at Calvary. Jesus says the significance of eating the bread is that it represents his body. Listen how Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Paul says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That word broke or broken is a Greek word. It's klea, K-L-A-O. It literally means to shatter. You see, the bread was flat. It was a big piece of bread. And Jesus took it and broke it. He literally shattered it into pieces. And it reminds us of his humanity, how he was fully God, but would become fully man, and his humanly body would endure unimaginable pain and agony and torture in the hours to come. He became man that he might die as a man and become a substitute for mankind. So we're to take that piece of bread this morning, And when we do so, we're to eat it remembering all the suffering that he endured for our redemption and deliverance from sin. When you remember the torture and the agony that he endured because Jesus knew what he was getting ready to do and what would happen, he's looking forward also to the future. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, he institutes this part of the supper to reflect upon the suffering, both physically and spiritually, that would be taking place in less than 24 hours. Go back in your mind. Look back to the part, think about all that Jesus did just for you and for me. After he had this meal, he and his disciples went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he was captured by the religious leader's men. They took him. They tied him up and carried him to the religious leaders. Later, they would take him to a whipping post and tie him to that whipping post where he would be whipped with a Roman cat-of-nine-tails whip. Each one of those nine leather straps having cut glass or metal or or pieces of glass tied to the end of it, that as that whip hit his body, it not only hit and cut him, but it literally ripped the flesh from his body. Each blow, 39 times. Many never survived that. Theologian uh, historians tell us that oftentimes prior to a crucifixion, when people endured that tied up post and the whipping that took place, they never got up from that post. They literally died right there because of the cruelty of those whips cutting through their flesh. After they whipped him, they blindfolded him. The Bible tells us that they made made fun of him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and punctured his scalp all the way to his skull. They placed a purple robe on his back after it had been ripped open by this whip. Theologians tell us that that whip literally hit him from the top of his head to the bottom at his feet. His entire body became a mass of blood and goo. They placed that robe on him Can you imagine the pain of just having something put on that? Each time I have to put a Band-Aid on, I hate doing it because I hate ripping it off. I don't like the feel on my skin of a a Band-Aid. But a time would come when they would literally rip that robe off of Jesus' back. Imagine that dried blood attached to that robe as it was pulled off. And again, the excruciating pain with that after putting the robe on and mocking him for a while, we're told in the Bible that they literally hit him with fists and wooden reeds, leaving him not only in pain, but dazed in his, in his condition. They made him carry a wooden cross. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century, says, it's believed that cross weighed as much as 200 pounds, and he carried it a distance of perhaps as much as a half a mile before he could no longer carry it because of his weakness. And then when they got to Golgotha, that hill where he was crucified, they laid that cross on the ground and placed Jesus on it. They then took spikes, placed them in his hands and in his feet. They raised that cross up dropping it into a hole, and in so doing, how those spikes would have ripped through his hands and his feet. Jesus endured all that. They offered him vinegar while he was on the cross there. They laughed at him. They made fun of him, encouraging him to come down off the cross. The idea was that most men that were crucified would die from just that, just the puncturing of their hands and feet. It was very difficult to breathe. Their lungs couldn't fill up with air, and they would try to push themselves up on that cross so they could get what air they could in their lungs. Oftentimes, history tells us that men would live two to three days agonizing on the cross. Oftentimes days would go by, and then the Roman centurions would come and they would break their legs so they could no longer push themselves up. This being during the Passover, with the celebration to begin at 6 pm. that evening, they went ahead and broke the legs of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. But the Bible tells us that when they got to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and had no need to have his legs broken, fulfilling the scriptures where it tells us that not a bone was broken in his body. His worst suffering came while he agonized there on the cross, when he took your sins and my sins upon himself to die for the sins of the world. And when he did that, in bearing our sins in his body, that's when his heavenly Father because He is so holy, couldn't even look upon His Son on the cross and turned His back on Jesus. Because God is holy. When you take that small piece of bread this morning, go back 2,000 years ago and remember all the pain that Jesus went through. There in Matthew 26... Verses 27 and 28, the Bible says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, when you take that cup this morning and you drink that juice, it's to remind us that salvation was accomplished by the shedding of his blood through all the torture and agony that he endured. The juice represents all the blood that Jesus shed for you and for me. He had to shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. He couldn't have just died through suffocation. He couldn't die from hanging. He couldn't die from drowning. His blood had to be shed in order for us to be forgiven. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, the law requires everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In First John 1 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sin. Renowned New Jersey uh, artist, back in 1933, developed what he called the guilt kit. The guilt kit. He developed it because he had heard that so many people were walking around his town with tremendous guilt in their hearts because of sins that they had committed. He developed 2,500 kits. The kits consisted of a small paper bag with instructions. He developed 2,500 of them and sold them for $2.50 a piece. The idea was is that you would take the bag when you felt guilty, put it to your mouth, blow into the bag, then pop the bag. And that was to rid you of your guilt. Many people purchased those. In fact... In less than a year's time, he had raised, this is back in the 30s, 1930s, he raised $6,250 selling guilt kits to those who felt guilty. Friends, the only way to have guilt of sin removed from our lives and from our hearts is through the blood of Jesus. A little boy got lost one day. In a large city, a policeman found him crying on the street corner. He went up to him and said, son, what's your problem? He said, I'm lost. I don't know where I am and I don't know where I live. And the policeman had an idea and he said, well, what's around your house? Maybe if you can tell me what's around your house, I can help you find your home and get home. He said, is there a school around your house? He said, well, the school's about a block away. Well, what's the name of the school? I don't know. He said, well, is there anything else? Well, there's a bunch of houses. Well, what do they look like? Well, they all are red with brick, and they have a black roof on them. I have driveways. Pretty much any neighborhood would fit that description. The police officer said, well, son, is there anything at all that you can think of that's really close to your house that might give me a clue where you live that I can get you home? A little boy said, well, there's a church that I can see from my backyard. It's real big, and at the top of the steeple is a cross. And I think if you can get me to the foot of that cross, I can find my way home. Friends, that's where we are today. If we go to the foot of the cross, Jesus will show us our way home. He has a plan. An interesting story is told I don't know if it's true or not. It's on the internet, so Jeff, it must be true. (laughs) The story is told that if you look in the book of Luke, when Jesus was buried, they covered him with burial cloths. And in that period of time, they would typically wrap the body. And in addition to that, they used what they called a napkin. And they would place that napkin over the face of the deceased. I know that's true because I used to be in the funeral business and I've read history about how that's what Hebrew people did. They placed this napkin over the face of the deceased. If you look in the book of Luke, you'll see that when the disciples got to the tomb where Jesus had been laid, they walked in, they found the burial garments, not wadded up, thrown on the ground or across the tomb. They found that burial napkin folded. The Scripture says that. Check it out in the book of Luke. The napkin had been folded and placed there. Now, there's a significance to that. In Hebrew custom, when the head of the household was through with their meal, they did one or two things with their napkin. They would either wad the napkin up and place it on the table or they would neatly fold the napkin and place it to the side of their dish. The purpose of that was so that the slaves who would clean up after the meal would know that if the napkin was wadded up, the head of the house was through and he would not be returning. But if the napkin was folded, it meant he would return and they would leave everything as it was. Isn't it interesting that the napkin was folded? And what that tells me is Jesus knew when he left that tomb, he would be coming back. And if you look down there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a day of judgment. And today we have a wonderful opportunity. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, today you can come to know the saving grace of His shed blood. You can put your trust in Him. You can ask for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask Him to forgive you. Come into your heart. Be the Lord and Savior of your life. And he will do that. He promises that. He will do that. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, you remember the suffering that Jesus went through, what he did for each of us and our sins. And then remember that he's coming back. And one day, we'll have the Lord's Supper with him. In just a moment, Jeff's going to come up. He's going to lead us. In an invitation to him. we want to give people that may need to make a decision today the opportunity to accept Jesus. Maybe your life's off track, and you need to get your life back on track. You know, you never want to take the Lord's Supper without the confession of sins that you've committed that you haven't asked for forgiveness for. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. We're going to have a very short invitation, and then we're going to go right in to the Lord's Supper. So when we have our invitation, if you need to make a decision, you come come quickly. Let's pray.